In this passage, Exodus chapter 4, 27 to 31, we might be inclined to see the sovereignty of God. Back in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Evidently, the Lord had spoken to Aaron, which is recorded for us in 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And the Lord had also spoken to Moses, saying, Aaron's on his way to meet you. And here, Aaron is coming to meet Moses, and Moses is now going to meet Aaron. And somehow in the wilderness, they are to come across one another. As Moses travels toward Egypt and as Aaron travels toward Midian. If one of you started an animal at Animal Flower Cave and another at Oystens and said, one is heading south and one is heading north and he's coming to meet you, it would be very unlikely that you would cross paths. Now, admittedly, the wilderness is likely much more sparse than Barbados. And there's likely not so many roads, but I imagine it was still some stroke of providence that Moses and Aaron would meet. I imagine that it's not quite so simple as just walk out into the wilderness and you can't miss him. So we might be inclined, we might be inclined to see God's sovereignty here. And of course, we wouldn't be wrong, but that's not the dominant theme in this passage. We might be inclined also to see the epistemological condescension of God. So epistemology being, how do we perceive the truth? How do we know the truth? So something either is or isn't true um, in and of itself, but that's a separate issue from how, even if something is true, how might we know it? How would we access it? And so obviously Moses has been sent by the Lord to rescue the people from slavery. But how would they know that? How would the people of Israel know that this man who comes saying, Yahweh sent me to you, is actually sent from Yahweh? If the Lord just said to Moses when Moses objected, what if they don't believe me? If the Lord had just said, well, tell them, thus says the Lord. I sent you. It wouldn't make it any less true or any less valid that Moses was sent by God. And if Moses was actually sent by God, the people would have been obliged to receive Moses at the Lord's word. And yet what does the Lord do? He gives signs. This is epistemological condescension. So that... These people, when they said, how do we know that the Lord has sent you? And Moses throws his staff down and it becomes a serpent. Moses reaches in his cloak and pulls it out, pulls his hand out, and it's leprous. That these people would realize something supernatural is indeed going on here. And so we see God's care for us. His condescension to us not always to just require us to just take Him 
baldly at his word, but that he often corroborates what he has said with evidences that we might see and perceive and understand and appreciate. Again, that is a theme in the passage, but it's not the dominant theme of this passage. Instead, this passage is a poignant, moving, impactful section of Scripture describing the proclamation of good news, first to Aaron and then to the elders of the people of Israel, and then implicitly to all the people. The theme is the benevolence of God. This is what is primarily in view here in this section. In verse 31, the people hear and respond to the truth that God had seen their affliction. Imagine their affliction. Consider the anguish in which they lived. Of course, we know of the policy of male infanticide. Consider that for a moment. Let that sink in. We gloss over it because we're several steps removed from it. But consider the anguish of that. For those of you who have sons, imagine that there was a proclamation that you now need to go drown them in the sea. Imagine the trauma of that. The, the difficulty is too light a word. Truly the anguish of that. And the, the practice of that mandated and so widespread and without exception. Imagine the toll that that would take not only on individuals, not only on families, but on a whole people. That all of our boys, all of our sons, are murdered. Month after month, year after year. None of our boys make it. Imagine that affliction. Consider the complete disregard that that shows for the worth of a Hebrew life that Pharaoh and implicitly the whole Egyptian system was just so unconcerned with Hebrew life had devalued Hebrew life so much that essentially essentially the proclamation was as good as go drown your boys in the sea if we were in if something like that happened in Barbados that might be an analogous rule. And imagine if something like that was proclaimed here. That everybody of a certain ethnicity or people group must go drown their boys in the sea. Just imagine the anguish of that. And the toll that that would take and the way that it would just... It just communicates a total devaluing of their personhood and who they are. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11, we read that Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, beating a Hebrew, one of his people. 
I don't think we're to imagine that this is an isolated incident. If it was an isolated incident, Moses would have just reported it and it would have been dealt with and there would be no need to kill him and bury him in the sand. This would be commonplace. And so the male boys were to be killed. And then those who were already adults were no more valued. They were just a labor force. Basically just chattel. Again, imagine the toll that that would take on your psyche. And not only as an individual, but on the collective psyche of a people. We're all a step removed, obviously, from chattel slavery here in Barbados. But that's a comparable in recent collective memory. And just think of just the horrors of just a devaluing of a whole people group. And the injustices and the oppression. And along with physical violence, when there is a mentality like this, there's often sexual violence that attends also. Other degradations. There's a dehumanizing effect upon people who are victims of either individual abusive acts or as in this case abusive oppressive acts toward a whole people group and a whole nation imagine the anguish of these people the affliction of these people Imagine the questions that their hearts would ask. Does evil win? What is the what is the meta narrative of this world? Might makes right? Wealth makes right? Power or privilege makes right? What is the meta narrative of this world that we live in? Does anyone care about me? Does anyone care about us? We read at the end of Exodus chapter 2 that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cried out to God. Does God hear? Is God listening? Remember I pointed out that they were in slavery for a long time. God eventually intervened but it wasn't for a while. took some time so you're crying out to God in your affliction and your in your anguish year after year and decade after decade you you bury your father and then you yourself grow old and your sons are now enslaved with you or perhaps you have no sons because of this policy of infanticide and your daughters are mistreated and abused Does anyone care? Does God care? Does God hear? 
Is God listening? Well, imagine being Aaron. We just read, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. I don't know what that encounter was like. We often read these things, these one-sentence things, as if they're mentioned in passing. (laughs) The Lord said to Abram, the Lord said to Aaron. But imagine after some 400 years, God speaks. And presumably, there was some context given to Aaron for why he should go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Just as there was information, further information given to Moses while he was out in the wilderness. Imagine being Aaron and hearing that God was, had now set things in motion to release you from your affliction. We don't know how much or how little Aaron knew, but even the very fact that God had spoken and that things were happening, that things were moving, would have been encouraging. And then look at this. So Aaron went and met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. That's just a common greeting. Familial greeting of warmth and love and concern. So here's his brother that he hasn't seen in at least 40 years. We don't know the circumstances of Moses' departure. It was undoubtedly hurried in some sense. We don't know if he even got to say goodbye to Aaron. Remember, they didn't live in the same household. It may have become too dangerous too quickly and Moses just had to go. But here's this reuniting at the mountain of God. After God has spoken to Moses, Aaron's on his way to meet you. And after God has spoken to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. Here they are now at the mountain of God, reunited after decades. And both of them have some understanding, surely some understanding at least, that they are to be used of God to do something about what's happening with the Israelites in Egypt. Verse 28, And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Doubtless, whatever information Aaron had already been given, this was more. This was filling in some of the blanks, some of the questions that would have been outstanding in Aaron's mind. Doubtless, this was filling in the details of the picture of why it was that God had commanded him to come out and meet Moses. And so here is now Aaron hearing, having this news wash over him that God is going to rescue the people of Israel from their affliction. Here he is now at the mountain of God with his brother who he hasn't seen in 40 years hearing that God saw, God heard, God remembered, God knew. And God was sending Moses and Aaron on this mission to rescue his people. Verses 29 and 30 parallel this meeting at the mountain. Moses and Aaron now travel together back to Egypt and they call all the elders of the people of Israel together. 
Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And either Moses or Aaron, the grammar is somewhat debatable, either Moses or Aaron did the signs in the sight of the people. I tend to think it was Moses who actually did it, and Aaron was the spokesman, as that's kind of what's been described to us. But in any case, it's, it's essentially a parallel thing as what has just happened in the previous verses. Moses first was moving toward Egypt, and the first stage was giving the good news, proclaiming the good news to his brother Aaron, and Aaron's reception of it, and hearing that somebody has seen, somebody has heard, somebody has remembered, somebody knows, and that Moses is God's instrument to redeem his people from their slavery. Stage two is now they're traveling together, Moses and Aaron. And again, it's the proclamation of the good news that God has met with Moses and that God has given him a mandate to set his people free. And again, the signs are done to assure the hearers that this is not just a crazy man talking, but that God is with him. And imagine that the feeling of that good news washing over you after generations of this affliction in Egypt after crying out after asking all these questions of the heart hearing that God has sent a deliverer that Yahweh is about to act on behalf of the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob for the sake of his covenant Imagine the relief and the joy and the swelling of probably so many emotions as you hear this good news. This is essentially what has happened to us in receiving the gospel. Not necessarily in terms of our temporal circumstances, of course. None of us were slaves in Egypt. None of us, though perhaps some of your fathers were slaves here in Barbados. None of us as individuals have been. And so our temporal circumstances might not be the same as these people who were enslaved in Egypt. But in terms of the questions that our hearts also ask from time to time, and the way that good news comes to us in answer, this passage parallels the gospel coming to us. Sin has had devastating effect, has had a devastating effect on this world. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We see that on the day that Adam ate of it, his body did not literally expire that same day. And so death was a more comprehensive term than simply biological death. 
death did enter into that into the world. Adam did die in a very real sense that day that he ate of the fruit, though it wasn't the simply the expiration of his life biologically. Death has had a part of me. Sin has had a devastating effect. We see the way that sin rips apart societies, whole cultures, nations. Even in Egypt, or even here in Barbados, the whole institution of slavery, the way that when sin becomes deeply enrooted and entrenched in people's way of thinking, terrible atrocities are committed against other human beings and against God. Sin makes a terrible mess, even of the largest units of human society that we can conceive of. At the level of the workplace or the public sphere, it's the same way. Sin makes a mess of things. People are mistreated. People are taken advantage of. People are used. One man profits by stepping on others on his way to the top. In families, sin wreaks havoc. There's so much devastation, so much fallout from sin. Marriages fall apart. Abuse happens even within family situations. Terrible things result from sin in our families. And even individually, sin causes so much devastation in our individual lives. Many of us have come to see that and have come to acknowledge that certainly all who are in Christ Jesus at one point came to see that sin has made a mess of our individual lives even many unbelievers at least can see that sin makes a mess of things even if they're not prepared to acknowledge the solution as yet but whether or not people see it and acknowledge it it does and if they don't see and acknowledge it they're sort of like the Egyptians in this passage Their sin is causing devastation. Maybe it brings some temporal benefit to them, but it's hurting others. Our individual sin causes big problems in this world and in people's lives. Sin has just made a mess of us as individuals and of every unit of society radiating outward from us. And when we properly understand just how bad of a situation we are in, we ought to feel a sense of affliction and a sense of anguish. Who or what is going to make this world right? If you tie your hope to the political ups and downs of nations, changes in government, elections, violent revolutions, whatever, always hoping that one day things are going to be fixed. You'll find yourself 
increasingly despairing as the years go by and as you see that no matter how many changes are made at those levels things don't get better as time goes on you see that the sin that wreaks havoc in the public square or in the economic system is not really going to go away. It's not really going to get better. In your families, sin is going to continue to be a problem, at least to some degree and to some level. You're never going to be free from it. Individually, you can't fix yourself. Some people have tried, but you never succeed. You never fix yourself. When we start to see just how pervasive sin is, and just how entrenched it is in our own hearts, in our own minds, in the hearts and minds of the people around us, and the society around us, it ought to bring us anguish. It ought to cause us to feel a sense of affliction. We might ask ourselves, does evil win? What is the meta-narrative? Does might make right? Does wealth make right? How does this world work? What is written in the final chapter? Is it all for naught? And you just try to be a good person and you embrace virtue and you embrace morality and you see other people succeeding and you are not but you pride yourself that you're doing something noble and good but in the end you both go to the grave and the worms destroy your bodies alike and there's no sense and purpose to it all and essentially evil wins is that the way the world works you might ask yourself does anyone care about me Does anyone care about us? Perhaps you cry out to God. Yet you wonder, does God hear? Does God care? These are the questions that human hearts ask. However our temporal situations may change and may differ especially when we suffer. But even if we don't suffer extraordinarily and we suffer in ways that are just common to everyone, when we start thinking more deeply about life, more clearly about life and reflecting, these are questions that have to arise. Is there anyone out there that cares? Or are we left here on this rock orbiting around the sun just doing what we can living as we see fit try to take care of yourself because you're alone in this big universe spanning millions of light years and nobody cares but then the gospel comes to us as the gospel as a gospel of sorts came to them 
that Yahweh has seen. Yahweh has heard. Yahweh remembers. Yahweh knows. At some point, for those of us in this room who are Christians, the gospel came to us. There is something that has been done about the sin that makes a mess of things. Something that has been done about the affliction we are all in. Something that has been done about the anguish. Evil doesn't have the last word. I've heard it said like this before that good is not a temporary interruption into a meta narrative of chaos and senselessness or at worst evil. In other words, good is not just a bright spark in an otherwise meaningless universe. Rather, evil is a temporary insertion into a meta narrative of goodness and glory and righteousness that God has existed from eternity past and the affliction that has entered into this world has made a mess of things here and now but it is simply a spark of deviancy which will be corrected and God will make all things new and what was wrong will be made right and into eternity future God will dwell with his people in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of this is brought about by the work of Christ Jesus. That God saw us plunge into sin. That God saw the mess. That God heard our cries. That God remembered that promise that He had made so long ago as He was cursing the serpent. A seed of the woman shall crush your head. God knew our affliction. God knew the anguish that we experience because of sin. And He did something. He sent His Son into this world to become flesh and to dwell among us. To live as a second Adam, doing what the first Adam should have done in order to undo everything that came to pass because of the first Adam's failure. So Christ Jesus obeyed the precepts given Him by the Father so that instead of cursing, this second Adam might bring restoration and blessing upon the world. He lived a life of perfect righteousness as a covenant head the way that Adam sinned as a covenant head and as Adam's sin affected everyone whom he represented covenantally and even the physical universe cursed is the ground because of you so Christ Jesus in his righteousness as a covenant head affects everybody whom he covenantally represents and even the physical universe as Romans 8 tells us even creation itself expects to be free from its bondage to decay and so God has seen God has heard 
God has remembered. God knows. And God has sent a deliverer to rescue His people from their affliction. This event, or these events described for us at the end of Exodus chapter 4, really happened. God rescued His people from their slavery in Egypt. Let's not deny or downplay or mythologize the historical events that happened here. But even as we see that God saw and heard and remembered and knew that, we should realize that that was typological. It was a picture of something even greater that would happen later. And that Moses was raised up to be a forerunner and a foreshadower of another. Moses himself testified later, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And just as Moses was sent then as a rescuer of his people, of God's people from their affliction, so God later raised up a rescuer for his people from their affliction. And just as the good news came to wash over Aaron and the elders of Israel, and as they would have had that that sense of relief and joy and just that swelling overwhelmedness with the benevolence of God, then in those circumstances, so we in the reception of the gospel ought to be similarly overwhelmed ought to experience that same swelling of profound emotions, joy and relief, that everything wrong with this world will be undone. Everything wrong with me will be undone. Everything wrong with every facet of society will be undone, and God will make all things new. He will rescue His people from their affliction. Look at the response of the people in verse 31. And the people believed. Do you believe? Do you believe the good news that has come, that God has sent a rescuer to release His people from affliction? And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads, And worshipped. When we hear. And if we believe. The very next thing that we ought to do. Is bow our heads and worship. There is a God in heaven. Who has heard our groanings and our cries. There is a God who has seen the affliction. Of this world. There is a God. Who has remembered the promises that He made all along. There is a God who knows my sufferings and our sufferings. And there is a God who has sent a rescuer to release me, to release us from these things. May we be a people here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church that ever bow our heads and worship as the gospel washes over us again and again.